turning in our Bibles as we continue our series on Luke's Gospel, Luke, the sixth chapter, the first 11 verses. Years ago, I made a decision about Mother's Day. I think it's great that we have Mother's Day. I think it's wonderful that we honor our mothers. I grew up in a setting, and many of you did too, in which Mother's Day was a very maudlin time in church services, and there was very little of Christ in it. I determined very early that I honored the Lord and honored my mother best by continuing to preach the series that I'd always been preaching. It's also a time in which there's great joy for some mothers and a lot of sadness for some mothers. And it has, there are some moms who will not even come to churches on Mother's Day because it's not really about Christ and it's focused on some things that make them incredibly and deeply sad. For those reasons and others, I think that it's best that we go on with the series, and I'm really happy that you have moms and that I have a wonderful mother and a wife that's a wonderful mother, and uh, believe me, she will be pampered and cared for. I hope we do that all the time, but on a, special, on a special day like this, and then we'll all gather back with our godly mothers for worship in the evening, right? So let's turn to Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter, the first 11 verses. Let's bow in prayer. And now, Heavenly Father, what a wondrous thing it is for us to sit at Jesus' feet, the feet of our exalted, reigning Lord, and to know that the word that we read has been given by divine inspiration, and that we, like children, lisp our prayer to you even now and ask that you will meet us in this special way in which you do when the word of God is preached and applied to our hearts and souls. And so may your people grow in grace this morning. May we see Jesus, who only is fair, and may we see something of the beauty, the power, the wonder of his redeeming work. And for those who may be with us today who do not know anything about the Savior, we pray that you would open their hearts and that, having come in lost, they would leave saved that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer of God's elect. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and stand as we read Luke's Gospel, beginning at verse 1 of the 6th chapter. This is the Word of God. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. 
And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored, and they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, there is an immediate connection of these passages that we have read this morning and the calling of Levi and the short parables Jesus told that we saw last time as Luke was stressing the antithesis between a religion of works and God's method of salvation by grace alone. The Pharisees were so attached to their corrupt, mournful, works-righteousness approach that they saw no need for Jesus. They were so attached to death that they saw no need for life. They were so lost that they had no desire for Jesus, who alone is the Savior. A religion of works cannot tolerate God's method of grace. Grace brings a totally different point of view. Now, those two points of view, works righteousness and grace, are pointedly clear in the passage before us. And how does this uncover our hearts? For I would remind you once again that there is a Pharisee in every human heart. So we come to chapter 6, and the first thing we see is the point of the controversy, the point of controversy, the Sabbath. The disciples, probably on the edge of a field, pick stalks, and they rub the stalks in their hands in order to expose the grain, and they eat the grain in order to satisfy their hunger. The Sabbath was established by God for man's good. The law permitted one to pluck corn that did not belong to him so long as he used his own hands, according to Deuteronomy 23:25. The Pharisees, however, object. This is work. It is work on the Sabbath. Rabbinic law was confused with God's law, and rabbinic law legislated for every possible circumstance. Indeed, I pulled down from my shelf this week Schurer's History of the Jewish People in the Time of Christ, and there were 39 prohibitions that the Jews applied to the Sabbath day. 39. The Mishnah that was written in the second century was, uh, was certainly probably reflective of the viewpoint that would have been found in Jesus' ministry in his day. Uh, doing something like the disciples did was considered reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food on the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples then are being watched by the Pharisees. They want to see him slip. They want to see him make the mistake of doing a good deed on the Sabbath day. And what Jesus does in joy and service on the Sabbath were a threat to their entire twisted piety and religious system of Pharisaism. In verse 2 we read, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Ah, we saw it. You plucked grain and you ate on the Sabbath. Jesus' answer is found in verses 3 through 5, in which he points to the incident found in 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. 
David and his men, in the time of great need, entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread. Jesus then once again appeals to Scripture. It is an analogy from one holy incident to another. David ate bread, and that was part of the 12 loaves that was set out in the holy place. This was the bread prepared by the Levites, and that was changed every week. It was only for the priests. David ate bread of the priesthood, in an official sense, illegally. Or was there a mercy component that made his eating perfectly right? And so by that analogy, Jesus is saying, condemn me, condemn David. Condemn me, condemn Ahimelech the priest. Hendrickson puts it beautifully. If David had a right to ignore a divinely ordained ceremonial provision when necessity demanded it, then would not David's exalted antitype, namely Jesus, God's anointed in a far more imminent sense, have a right under similar conditions of need to set aside a totally unwarranted man-made set of regulations which were misapplications of God's holy law? So you Pharisees are forgetting the very purpose of the law of God as a reflection of God's character. You have extended the scope of the law beyond its intention. You have forgotten the real purpose of the Sabbath, which is to give men time to contemplate God and to rest from their ordinary labors. The Sabbath was never given to forbid acts of mercy on that day and was given to reflect God's fatherly care and his love and his mercy. Surely it's right to show love and mercy on the Sabbath if it is given by the hand of a loving and merciful father who cares about his children, who gave that very day because he wanted to show love and mercy to them. And then the bombshell. You see it here in verse 5. The bombshell, Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now in all three accounts, Matthew's account, Mark's, Luke's, kurios, Lord, is first in the sentence. It's in the place of emphasis. Jesus is stressing this idea, this truth, that he is Lord over the Sabbath. And undoubtedly the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, who does he think he is? Who does just Jesus think he is calling himself Lord of the Sabbath? Does he think he's God? Well, as a matter of fact, that's who he is. For one thing, there's this expression, son of man, that we come up against, which is traceable to Daniel 7, an expression of deity. Uh, who he is will unfold more and more as Luke progresses. But yes, this is who he is. He is God in the flesh, God incarnate, who has come to save sinners from our sins. So Jesus here challenges directly the authority of the Pharisees, saying, I have the right to set aside your conventions that keep people in bondage. I have the complete right to set those aside. And he speaks with incredible personal authority, as we have seen time and again, the kind of authority that would be pathological in someone who is not who he claims to be. With incredible authority, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I have the right to determine this matter. After all, he did give the law on Mount Sinai. He indeed is its infallible interpreter. It has flowed out of his gracious, loving, and merciful heart. 
He should know how to use that day, don't you think? That sets up the issue. And then secondly, we see healing on the Sabbath, legalism rebuked. Now, this follows in verses 6 through 11, and the healing, of course, is on another Sabbath. We learn that in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. The theme links these events together in order to give a demonstration of his lordship. This is something that happened in his ministry that will demonstrate his claim that he is lord of the Sabbath. So here is Jesus, he is teaching on the Sabbath, and a man in the synagogue comes with a withered, and it specifies right hand, because probably the man is right-handed, and his livelihood depends upon the use of that hand. Perhaps he was in pain, we don't know, but surely his livelihood suffered. And Jesus, you wouldn't be so audacious as to heal this man on the Sabbath, would you? The Pharisees taught that virtually no medical issue was to be addressed on the Sabbath. Exceptions would involve a birth or something that was truly life-threatening. But their attitude about the man with a withered hand was, he can wait. I mean, look, he's had a withered hand all this time. He can wait. It doesn't matter if he waits another day. Of course you realize The Pharisees would not be satisfied for Jesus to heal the man no matter what day it happened. Nonetheless, their attitude is seen in verse 7. Look at it. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. And the verb that we read for watching here paratereo can have in a context like this the meaning of watching maliciously. And so they were watching Jesus with malice, to watch with sinister intent. Plummer, in his great old commentary on Luke, takes the para, takes the preposition that is a part of the verb very seriously, and translates it looking sideways from the corner of their eye. And so they're watching Jesus. Always their eye is on Jesus. They want him to slip up. They want him to make a mistake. They want him to do something on the Sabbath that's good and merciful. Listen, it's not legalism to obey the Sabbath. We teach in this church that there is a Lord's Day, that there is the moral perpetuity of the fourth commandment. It is not legalism to obey the Sabbath. It is legalism not to heal on the Sabbath. It is legalism not to show mercy on the Sabbath. It is legalism not to reflect the merciful character of God on the Sabbath or any other day for that matter. To care about people on the Sabbath honors God. To care about people on the Sabbath honors the Sabbath, and that remains. To worship God and to rest from our ordinary labors. But people get really confused about this especially in the church today. Hendrickson gives a most interesting example of a wrong-headed view of the Lord's Day. The snow is everywhere. The banks have piled up. There is no way for the minister to drive down the street to get to the church in order to preach to his flock. Uh, There's no way that he can get a car through. There's no way that he can walk through the streets. There's nothing left to do but to don his skates. Now, this is in Amsterdam. This is in the winter. And it's cold, and in Amsterdam in the winter, the, 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 what do you call them? Canals, thanks. The canals, the canals are frozen over, all right? 
I'm not from Amsterdam, if you guessed. The canals are frozen over. So he dons his skates. He gets on the canals, and he goes down the canal, and he gets to church in time to preach. But the elders aren't pleased. He skated on the Lord's Day. And so what they finally determine is this. If he enjoyed skating on the Lord's Day, then he will be censored. If he didn't enjoy skating on Lord's Day, then he will not be censored. Well, I hope the man really enjoyed honoring the Lord, skating down the canal to get to church so that he could preach the gospel to his people. You see, this is really a wrong-headed view of the Lord's Day, and we've seen it time and time again in the church. We've seen both extremes. So not to skate down the canal on the Lord's Day to get to church to preach to your people would not honor God and would not honor the Lord's Day if you can do that kind of thing. I would end up on my, well, anyway, so (laughs) not to heal on the Lord's Day does not honor Jesus' heavenly Father. And so Jesus responds graphically with a visual parable. He knows what they're thinking, and he calls the man forward. Verse 8, he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with a withered hand, come and stand here, and he rose and stood there. So the man comes there. And he stands before Jesus in the midst of the synagogue on this Sabbath day. And then Jesus asks in verse 9, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Well, it's good to deliver, to restore the word actually, sozo, to save, to deliver on the Sabbath. Don't you want God to be glorified? Don't you want to show mercy to this man? Don't you want him to be healed? And the Pharisees spied around, and they didn't want the man healed on the Sabbath. And they called that good that Jesus would do evil. And Jesus says that's destructive of life. They took the law of God, and they stuffed it way down in their twisted hearts, and they twisted the law of God with it. They just forced it into a mold in which God never intended for it to fit. Isaiah 58, 6, is not this the fast that I choose to lose the bonds, loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke? And the Pharisees are forgetting the words of Micah. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. They're forgetting all about that. And now as if to say, let me show you what the author of the Sabbath thinks about this. Verse 10, after looking around at them all, so there they are. You can imagine Jesus looking at every face, looking at every eye, pausing, looking. After looking around at them all, he said, he said to this man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. Now, I know you well enough, most of you, to know that brings great joy to you. It actually brings just tremendous joy to know that this happened and that Jesus did this act of mercy. An instantaneous total cure done by the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees must have gasped when he did it. Which leads us to the third thing we want to see in our text, the response of the heart. The response of the heart. 
how did the Pharisees respond? Well, undoubtedly, Rabbi Smelfungus is in the crowd again. Uh, He must have been there. And they're certainly not going to go against the teaching of Rabbi Smelfungus. And so they should have praised God, right? Uh, They should have begun to ask, who is Jesus, right? They should have congratulated the man, surrounded him. What love and mercy God has shown to you this day. But what they did is 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 to take in their breath and to say to one another, now we've got him. Now we've got him. He healed somebody on the Sabbath. Verse 11 says, But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The Greek text says for the word fury, anoia. Now, anoia is a word that means mindless. They were beside themselves. You might translate it that they were filled with irrational rage. These Pharisees were beside themselves with rage that Jesus had done good on the Sabbath. Mark 3 tells us the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. And so they are utterly angry and frustrated with Jesus because it does not fit their paradigm. But their stance is not determined by the word of God. They would murder in order to justify their positions. Rather than have their hearts exposed, they would murder to justify themselves rather than come to Jesus for justification and acceptance. The Pharisees were not committed to the law of God. For all of their talk about the law, they were not committed to the law of God. And the Pharisees were committed to themselves. And they were lost in irrational rage that led them to rationalize about the law of God and the truth of God. Now, you know, the deeper one's rebellion against God, the more irrational a person becomes. Some people are absolutely insane. I mean that literally because their sin has driven them to insanity. Who is that famous psychotherapist who said that large parts of mental facilities could be emptied if the people there could just know that their guilt was forgiven? Sin can so control a person that we rationalize and we call evil good. We become irrational and we rationalize, and this is a very dangerous place to be. Isaiah 5.20, God says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That is a dangerous place to be. That rationalization that comes from an irrational approach to the word of God and the truth of God. These people will actually call the son of God evil. Our culture's there. Never have I seen a day in which evil is called good or good evil more than what we see today. It's the result of sin, rebellion. And it shows in a variety of ways, but the Pharisees' problem is every person's problem. We're sinners who are, and I'm quoting Paul, we're paraphrasing him, we are sinners who are futile in our minds, darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God, sinfully ignorant, hard of heart, callous and impure, Ephesians 4, 17 and following. We are, says Paul in Colossians 1, alienated and hostile in mind. That's the problem that everyone has 
whether the Gentiles who show that usually through dissipation or the Jew who shows it religiously. We are not good people. By nature, we are ethically perverse people. We are totally depraved people. We are born with original sin. We are corrupt by nature in need of the intervention of the sovereign grace of God. And just as much as any Pharisee that walked the earth, we too are in need of that grace. And it doesn't help us not to hear the truth about our need. A doctor does no good to soothe a person with a serious disease by telling him it's not so serious. After all, go home and take an aspirin. We need to hear what the Bible says about the human heart. But you know, religion can be the ultimate truth suppression. These Pharisees in their religion were suppressing the truth way down deep. Was it Augustine who said some sins are chained by other sins? And religion, human-made religion, can bind the tightest. Every man's virtues are sins. They are done with no desire for God's glory. I'm talking about outside of Christ. They are done with no desire for God's glory and without faith and conversion to God. So what does religion do? Man doesn't love God, not the true and living God. He doesn't love God, but he dreads hell. And so he tries to change God. And that's every man-made religion in the world. The whole human race fell in Adam. We are helpless in ourselves. The Son of God came, and sinners put him to death. He heals on the Sabbath, and they want to do away with him. How dark and desperate the human heart must be. How great is my need of a Redeemer. How great is your heart's need of a Redeemer. And so the whole human race fell in Adam. What is to be done to make ourselves acceptable to God? Nothing. There is nothing you can do, nothing I can do. There is nothing that we can do. The whole human race fell in Adam, and there we are, lost and undone, hopeless and helpless. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot bring ourselves into a savable state. The whole human race fell in Adam, but thank God, when Adam fell, he fell on Christ. The Lord of the Sabbath is the living Lord of the dead and of the living. He can save. He came into the world to save. Men put him to death, but God had planned that day in eternity past that the incarnate God might shed his blood to redeem sinners like us. And no matter how dark your heart, no matter how polluted your soul, no matter how lost and undone you are, there is no sinner whose sins are too great for the blood of Jesus Christ to save. You dishonor the Son of God if you say, my sins are too great. Now this is what was revealed to Paul the Apostle, who was a Pharisee, you will remember, just like the ones here in Luke 6. As a matter of fact, he was such a Pharisee, he called himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He discovered that his attempt to be saved by law was reprehensible in God's sight. The whole legalistic religiosity must go, and the thought of his righteousness must become reprehensible to him. And here is what he said about his self-conceit in Philippians 3. 
whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and depends on faith. And he says in Galatians 2.21, if justification, that is acceptance with God, if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you think you can be saved by law, however you perceive it, you dishonor the Son of God, and you are saying he died for no purpose on the cross. If you think you are saved through law by being good and doing nice things, you are lying to yourself. Now, maybe there's someone here this morning, and maybe the truly frightening thing about you is that everything looks good on the outside, but the inside is filled with dead men's bones. The heart without Christ is a grave. It is a place of death. When we forget that everything is determined by the love of God in Christ, religion becomes, religion becomes the ugliest rebellion in the world. The Pharisees knew much about God. They could tell you a lot about God. They could, they could quote the catechism to you, and that's a good thing if you can. They could tell you about God's attributes. That's a good thing. They could tell you about the resurrection at the last day. Great. They could tell you about God, but they didn't know God. Now, maybe there's someone here. You can say a lot about God. Maybe you talk about God frequently. Maybe you even say right things. But do you know God through Christ? Do you know him as your Lord and as your Savior? God remained impersonal to the Pharisees. They had a misshaped and warped view of God, and that brought a misshaped and warped view of life so that you couldn't even show mercy to a man with a right withered hand on the Sabbath or skate down the canal to get to church to preach to your people. Where has this ugly hard view of things that's just contrary to God's mercy. Where has that gripped your heart? Where are you tempted for it to grip your heart? Where are you so misinterpreting God that it shows in a warped approach to something in your life? But Christ has come to bring a better righteousness. The Pharisees could produce none and neither can we. The master of joy has come, and he has set his people at liberty. The law of God could not heal this man with a withered hand. The law could only show the sinner's need. Only Jesus could heal this man, and only Jesus can clean up our warped and twisted and pharisaical hearts. So let me tell you, only Jesus can heal our pharisaical hearts 
none but Jesus, none but Jesus can do poor sinners good. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.